It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So it's uh, it's a strange reality uh, here in the midst of our training season. Uh, this is episode 21 in my series, which is likely going to be, now I, there's always the exception to the rule, but it's likely going to be 42 episodes, which shows that this is a halfway marker. And uh, at that halfway marker, we have sort of the ghost town effect here at Ellerslie. Uh, it's, it's a rough stretch uh, for us because we've said goodbye to our five weeks, and then we had uh, an alumni summit, and then we had an alumni extension week where the alumni students that are here for a week can stay for another week. And today marks a transition where, if you were to see what I see, it's a very attractive group of of students, but it's a very small uh, group that still linger and have some excuse to still be here. But, and I just want to say thank you guys uh, for being present, but if you hear more of an echoey sound uh, in the podcast today, it's because we have a big uh, cavernous empty chapel uh, that is just longing for our week-long students to show up soon. So we have, if you've never uh, studied the Ellerslie training calendar, we have this, this year it's 14 weeks. Usually it's a little longer because we have a gap in between, but this year we sort of consolidated it all together because we have a building project in the off season. But uh, it's a five-week summer semester. Then we have, like I was just saying, a one-week alumni summit and then an extension week. And this year we have then one week in between and then we have another five-week. Uh, no, 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 uh, correct that. We have a week-long training, and then we have a five-week. So it's, uh, it's 14 weeks, and we've gone seven uh, into it, which makes sense why we're 21 episodes in since I'm doing three in this series a week. Uh, and it has been a delightful series for me. You know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know if anyone would ever be honest with me if I came up to them and said, are you enjoying the series compared to other series? It's like, oh, of course, of course. But for me, I always sort of measure it as I'm going along my, I don't know if it's an enjoyment value or a spiritual profundity value. There's certain series I've gone through like Daring to Do a Stanley Dale, which the spiritual profundity value is just sort of off the charts. Uh, this one uh, is sort of a mixture of there's been some definitely some profound pictures that we've uh, unpacked in World War I, but it's also just been a very, very fun storyline because we're sort of weaving a whole bunch of storylines together. I'm doing it very differently than I did World War II, and I'm enjoying that. However, there are some concern points that I have. If this is the halfway point and I've gone just over a month into the storyline of a four-year uh, conflict, you can sort of understand why Eric is a little concerned of how this is all going to work. And at the same time, I, I sort of have a fast-forward button that I've been anticipating after this first season of the war. And that's what it is. It's, it's almost like two wars in one war. You have the first month, month and a half, even like few months period where it's establishing what we're going to call the Western Front, the Eastern Front, the, uh, the rest of World War I, which is almost the same Thing over and over and over again. And for the sake of sanity, it makes sense that we would just say, okay, see this war? Yeah, that happened 40 other times. All right, are you guys set? All right, now let's move to some of the key moments that changed everything. And because that's the way it feels. It feels like monotonously miserable, where you are just destroying hundreds of thousands of lives in each battle, and each battle looks exactly the same. There are individual heroics, but what you have is a whole bunch of generals that are still convinced that they can break through this stalemate and somehow change the war by continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again that has never worked. And I think that is the definition of insanity, you know, but that's what we're going to see in World War I, and it's a tough thing to study and to stare at for too long. So as a result, Eric Ludi is trying to figure out how to make this edifying, and so my fast-forward button is nearby. This is part 21, and I hinted that I may do this, and I decided that I, I you know, obviously I did. There it is on the screen as far as a title, The Meltdown of Moltke. So Helmuth von Moltke is the 
he would be the equivalent of Joseph Joffre for the French and Sir John French, who's over the British. I know that's a confusing one. His name is French, uh, but he is the British sort of commander-in-chief or field marshal, as they'll sometimes call it. And Moltke is, uh, I've already described him in a, in a simple sense uh, that he is, he's nicknamed Gloomy Gus by the emperor. And I'm going to go into that just a little. Helmuth von Moltke, we call him the classic pessimist. And so there's a picture of him. Uh, sort of a rather serious character. And this is what Barbara Tuckman says in The Guns of August about him. Tall, heavy, bald, and 66 years old, Moltke habitually wore an expression of profound distress, which led the Kaiser to call him, and here's a little German that's going to be hard for me to say, Der Traurig Julius, or what might be rendered gloomy Gus. And so that would be the equivalent of Gloomy Gus that we have in charge of the military maneuvers for the Germans. And when we visited him before, it was in this scenario where the Kaiser was beginning to panic and he didn't want a two-front war. He had, he'd always sort of threatened war, but he really didn't want war. He wanted everyone just to bend their knee and acknowledge that he was something special. And now suddenly they're going to war. And when there was a possibility floating in the air for a one-front battle against Russia and to take France out of it, he begged Moltke to stop the war machine, the Dertog, the Schlieffen movement, uh, to the west and to, to reverse it all and to just attack Russia. And Moltke said, it cannot be done. And from that point, actually, historically speaking, the one thing I didn't go into at that time is it created almost like a, a tick or a twitch inside of Moltke that was so stressful for Moltke that it sort of broke him down even at that point. The thought of trying to stop all of this was so overwhelming to him when the, basically the Kaiser, the king, or the Caesar of Germany is commanding him to do something, and he defies it and says it cannot be done. So this encounter is going to destabilize him a little. Now, up to this point, you know, as we've been going through the beginning of World War I, you, know, you have things like the violation of Belgium neutrality. Moltke had already accepted that. That was part of you know, the package. But the fact that it awakened the ire of the British because Belgium uh, actually defended itself, which wasn't supposed to happen, is going to stir anxieties within Moltke. But then there are going to be other moments where it looks like they're winning, and they even have the possibility of a double encirclement and the, the famous Kani uh, reprise. And so you see Moltke sort of rising up again, never actually getting excited, but you can sort of feel it if you were watching him. It's like, I think he's coming back. I think we're getting Moltke back. And then von Kluck turns his flank, and we have the Battle of the Marne, and Moltke begins to go on meltdown. So uh, this is sort of my 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 uh, creative phraseology here, from goat to goat. Now, if you saw it on the screen, it's from G-O-A-T, which is the modern rendition of saying the greatest of all time, which I think is one of the ugliest anachronyms ever created, to goat, like a real goat, like a scapegoat, the one that's going to carry the sin of a nation. And so he is going to go from potentially being the greatest of all time, because whoever is responsible, whoever is sitting in the driver's seat for this military maneuver, the Schlieffen plan, and then to actually choose to give Ruprecht the opportunity to hit from the south, and they can actually do a double encirclement, this will make him a legend. And he will likely be considered like a Napoleon, an Alexander the Great. And then right up there with those names will be Helmuth von Moltke, and all of us will go, oh yes, I know him. And yet what's funny is most people have no clue who the guy is. In fact, he's only going to last just over a month in World War I, and he is going to crumple up. And my heart really does go out to Helmuth von Moltke, because in a strange sense, he's just sort of a nice guy that got stuck in this very heavy-weighted situation. So I'm, saying, I'm calling this the misery of Helmuth Von Moltke. By the way, this, this message will get a little more pleasant as we progress. Just because we're talking about misery in the beginning doesn't mean the whole thing is going to be miserable. I'm going to show you two different ways to handle crisis and trials. And most of us have a tendency to handle our crisis and trials like Helmuth von Moltke. 
and it's just what we know. It's what has been modeled for us. And he doesn't have any other model either. And so as a result in this situation, the weights are going to crush him instead of make him stronger. So this is a letter that he's going to write to his wife during the Battle of the Marne days, which is somewhere around September 6th to September 12th of 1914. I cannot find words to describe the crushing responsibility that is weighing upon my shoulders during the past few days and still weighs on me today. The appalling difficulty of our present situation hangs before my eyes like a dark curtain through which I can see nothing. And so as you study the Moltke meltdown, I think in a strange way, all of us have been there. We just didn't carry the weight of nations uh, on our shoulders. And so as a result, we can relate, but almost like a distant cousin to something as opposed to sharing the experience personally. But I've been here. I've been in situations where I have a very difficult time seeing clearly that everything is suddenly a fog, or as he's calling it, a curtain before my eyes. And what's interesting is I even know truth. This guy doesn't know truth. This guy is an avid evolutionist uh, who also believes in this weird, twisted idea at that time. I think it was called theosoph theosophony or something like that. I even tried to look it up to figure out Moltke a little more, and I was like, okay, I'm giving up on this one. This is, this is weird. It's like a blend of all sorts of things, Buddhism and, and various things. This guy doesn't have a rock beneath his feet. Let's just put it that way. He doesn't have a worldview that supports it. He's expecting himself to uh, evolve and then expecting himself to reincarnate after he dies to be in a better situation next go around. And so he, his, his worldview is not supporting a crisis. Let me just put it that way. There's only one worldview that really supports a crisis, and that's Christianity. It's the one worldview that could actually make you stronger in the midst of difficulty as opposed to weaker. So Dan Carlin, in his podcast, The Blueprint for Armageddon, uh, is uh, going to say it this way. Now, if, if Dan were to hear me requote this, he, he might be a little offended because I'm sort of restructuring his sentence with parentheses. But this is what he said. It's just I'm changing sort of the tense of it. The Schlieffen plan collapsed in front of his eyes. And as Moltke realized this would all be blamed on him, he came apart at the seams. Uh, Colonel Max Bauer, who was a front and center witness uh, to Moltke's meltdown, uh, wrote this about September 10th, 1914. Desperate pain seized severely the entire army, or to be more correct, the greater part of its leaders. It looked at its worst at the supreme command. Moltke completely collapsed. He sat with a pallid face gazing at the map, dead to all feeling, a broken man. And Winston Churchill says it this way, the way only Winston Churchill can. Everything now converged upon Moltke. Who was Moltke? He was a shadow of a great name. He was the nephew of the old field marshal and had been his aide de camp. He was an ordinary man, rather a courtier, a man about the palace, agreeable to the emperor in the palmy days of peace, the sort of man that does not make too much trouble with the sovereign, who knows how to suppress his own personality, what there is of it, a good, harmless, respectable, ordinary man. And on this ill-fated being crashes the brutal, remorseless, centripetal impingement of tides and impulsions under which the greatest captains of history might have blanched. Isn't that a great quote? Don't you love uh, hearing a, a good Winston Churchill quote? So Helmut von Moltke, uh, now, this, I'm going to have to say this, that he allegedly has said this. There's multiple people in history that say, yes, he did say this. But then there's multiple people that say, I don't think he actually said this, which makes it one of these, what we call an alleged quote. And that is, Majesty, we have lost the war, which supposedly would have been said on September 9th, 1914, during the Battle of the Marne, when the Germans start retreating. It's a pretty extreme statement, and they didn't lose the war at that point in time. However, their opportunity to win the war, as they had, already, as they as, as had always envisioned via the Schlieffen plan, was officially destroyed. Winston Churchill says it this way, whether General von Moltke actually said to the emperor, Majesty, we, know, we have lost the war, we do not know. 
We know anyhow that with a prescience greater in political than in military affairs, he wrote to his wife on the night of the ninth, things have not gone well, the fighting east of Paris has not gone in our favor, and we shall have to pay for the damage we have done. And Helmuth von Moltke, who's going to die, I think, less than two years uh, from this point. Uh, in other words, this is sort of the beginning of his physical end. He just could not handle it. And after he leaves that position, he is going to leave, in a sense, in shame because he has failed the German people. And the level of intensity the Germans oftentimes have as far as how they weigh punishment out, uh, even socially, is pretty extreme on this poor guy. And this is his description of what had happened during those days between like September 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. He said, I had grown nervous. <laughs> I, I, I think that's an understatement, uh, Moltke, of what had happened to you. Here's a word that I want to introduce you to. Now, uh, if you look at it up on the screen, it looks like sang Freud. And yet, my guess is that I, I didn't actually look at the etymology of it, which I usually like to do, but I didn't. I got so interested in other aspects of it. But it's Sangfra. I, I still don't know if I said it right. But that's very different than I would have guessed. Sangfra. And so, this is the tensile strength of a soldier is what I'm calling it. Now, I have to explain tensile strength to even have you appropriate that. But tensile strength is like the measurement of rope or of springs, like on a trampoline. And it's how much weight something can handle and for how much time it can handle that weight. And a soldier is built to handle difficulty and not snap quickly. That is the entire idea of your training. For military combat, what you want is someone who doesn't fall to pieces quickly but someone who has a brave heart and who can endure in a time of crisis or a time of trial. How much more so the leaders of that soldier. And so as a result, sang froid becomes to the French military system the premier quality up there with crayon, if you remember me describing crayon, which is guts. But sang froid is measured in the crisis. It's how a leader handles the weights that are, uh, that are on them in the darkest moments. And so at, you know, I just want to pause on that and just sort of allow you to examine your own life as we're moving forward because that is a measurement that we have too. Because you can be really good and really strong in your Christian faith and in your, your views and in your love and your outward focus when everything is easy. But when things begin to ratchet up in difficulty, we have a tendency to behave very differently. As opposed to, historically speaking, those with sang froid actually grow 10 feet taller in the time of crisis. And you can say, well, that's just not my personality. And I would say, that isn't anyone's personality. Now, I shouldn't say it that way. There's people that would lean more that way, where they almost relish difficulty. Okay, so there is that. But every single one of us is built to crumple in our natural man because something is inadequate in our natural man. And that is why we must tie into something stronger to handle those weights, which is what Jesus is going to talk about when he's talking about the man who built his house upon rock and the man who builds his house upon sand. It's like if you have a sand foundation, it will be proven in the day of trial. However, if you have a rock foundation in the day of trial, it will prove itself able to hold you up. So this is Barbara Tuckman in the Guns of August, and I had to work with this statement too to, to have it make sense, which I have a few parentheses there, and this is what it is saying. But French military doctrine dictated that a general must, this is a general of the military, must maintain sang-froid before his staff and mastery of himself in the hour of extreme crisis. And if, you know, this is French military doctrine, right? But if I were going to give you a peek behind the scenes at Ellerslie, I would say the same thing. It is Ellerslie military doctrine that those that are in charge and responsible maintain sang-froid in the moment of extreme trial and testing. Because that's what 
a Christian does. That's like our assignment. You see, our job is to maintain composure, which is what sang is, in the midst of any trial. When the heat turns up on the gold, the gold rejoices because it's only being purified. And we recognize as a believer that we are rooted in something that cannot be dislodged. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even this circumstance, even that circumstance, even that potential harm, it does not remove me from my position in Christ. So as a result, we are able to maintain composure in the midst of very extreme situations. So the guy talking knows what it's like to not have sang as a leader and to have sang as a leader. I've had entire seasons of my life in ministry where I didn't even understand the concept. And so as a result, when the heat would turn up, I would go into a certain paralysis mode and I could not even function. And you could call it an anxiety attack. That would be an appropriate way of describing it. But it is the absence, it's the meltdown of my composure. Now, usually that was behind the scenes, praise God. You know, if you want to say it that way, there is one positive to this, and that was Leslie was the one that usually had to endure it. As I was laying on the floor, not able to breathe. Why? Because we had some petty little trial in our life that to me seemed like the end of the world. And this was a learning curve for me where I recognized that I had allowed something in which every time a door of difficulty would open, this anxiety would come flooding in on me and it would overtake me. And so when I read about the meltdown of Moltke, I've never carried the Schlieffen plan, running you know, the German military system. I've never carried that weight. But I understand Moltke in a strange way. I understand it's like he's reaching for things other than Jesus Christ as a rock to stabilize himself, which is a classic thing that we do. When crisis comes or when a difficulty comes or a door of difficulty opens in our life, we have a tendency to look or reason through what our, why we should not fear. And so we, we reason through things like, well, I have some money in the bank. Look, I'm not that bad of a guy. Or, you know, hey, I have this option or I could always escape to Mexico. You know, whatever it is, we try and create some type of infrastructure of our own making that would give us a solace. And yet Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm right here, hold on to me because I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. I'm a fixed reference point. I'm a rock. And so as a result, the, one of the crucial things that you must learn in your Christianity is that in the time of bluster, in the time of crisis, that he is a very present help in that time of trouble. And that you cling to him in the midst of the storm, like the tree in the midst of the storm. Everything else is blowing away because of the hurricane winds, but there is one tree that can, that, whose root system will never come up. And when you grip that, everything around you could be destroyed, but that one tree that you're holding on to, which is known as the cross of Jesus Christ, can never be uprooted. And when you cling to the right things, you can stand strong even in the midst of the most horrific storms. Sangfra leadership. I kept my pronunciation guide up there. I, I learned uh, after the last message that once I remove my pronunciation guide, it does not mean that I remember the pronunciation. So, uh, and if I was going to try and even remember it right now, uh, remember that plateau uh, in beyond the Aisne River in France. Uh, it, I remember it's like Chemin de Dom. Chemin de Dom. Did I get that? Look at that. Uh, you guys impressed? I, I just remembered a plateau in France. All right, so sang leadership. Stand still and hold your position. Now, the development of this, now I've never called it this. I don't, I've never, you know, if I were to come to the Ellerslie staff uh, and say, hey guys, uh, how's your sang They would be like, what are you talking about? In other words, this isn't like a normal term in the Ellerslie dialect. However, I, who knows, I might need to start using it. We use words like tensile strength, we use words like being presidential, or generaling the situation. These are terms that we have used for you know, well over a decade, and it means something to us. And that's partly because you know, in my leadership, I am going to create language to sort of enunciate things. And that's why I, I'm attracted to this word. When I hear that the French military generals must have sang froid, and that the one thing they esteem amongst generals is their sang froid, 
then I'm like, I need to know what Sangfra is. And then when I look it up, I'm like, oh, that is good. That is good. Now, it's not that I have never heard of it before. I've just never heard that word used to describe it. And so before Ellerslie started, I was in a tremendous storm. And it was a very, very intense pressure upon my life. And I still remember sitting on a couch in a, and it was in like an Airbnb back in the day, somewhere in Florida. And I had to make a choice. There was something I needed to do, but I wanted someone else to do it. You see, as a leader, oftentimes you have to eliminate all the other options and realize that you're the one responsible to do the action. Now, you might esteem the action as a good leader you know, would do that. Yeah, you could nod along and say, yeah, a good leader would do that, but a good leader needs to just do it. And that's the hard part. There's a difference between esteeming something and actually doing that something. And Sang Fra sort of demands that combo package of not just esteeming it, but in the hour of trial, rising up and doing it. And that's what Leslie and I started calling being presidential. Because we were sitting on that same couch together, and <clears throat> it was sort of like, well, who's Who's the responsible party to act in this situation? I'm trying to think through someone on my team that can be responsible to do this instead of me. Isn't there someone on my team that should have to do this? No, it's me that needs to do this. Okay, so if it is me that needs to do it, what am I, I going to do? And so I stood up, and I walked towards my cell phone, and I picked it up, and I called. And that call was one difficult call. And yet it was being presidential, and it moved this ministry. This is even before our ministry was even formed here on this campus. This is like right in the very beginnings, where I had to do a very, very hard thing to sort of knock the enemy's workings out of the way and to just move forward. Bullets whizzing over my head spiritually, artillery bomb blasts around me. Those are hard moments to get up out of the trench and to face that enemy fire. And it's just like, but who's going to do it? Hey, could someone else do this? Isn't there someone around that really enjoys this type of a thing? Why does it have to be me? Oh boy, I, whenever that thought goes through my head, I now can tag it and I know exactly what it is. Okay, that isn't how a leader thinks. A leader says, I'm willing to have it be me. Jesus, you can just imagine the Garden of Gethsemane. It's like, isn't there someone else? Isn't there another way? Isn't there uh, a different person's shoulders that could carry this? No. He has the assignment. And in a strange way, a leader gets to taste that in a small way to say, you're on. It's your moment. <laughs> so underneath this phrase, sang-fra, or song-fra, leadership, I have the phrase, stand still and hold your position. And that's what sang-fra leadership is. It's standing still, no panic, and holding your position. You're not budging. And that comes from Jehoshaphat, the story of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 17, when God speaks to the people of Judah and Jerusalem and to Jehoshaphat, and he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. That is a, a nutshell for leaderships, for saying fraud leadership right there. Now, this is an incredibly difficult situation for Jehoshaphat. He is surrounded by three armies, and his little Jude, his nation of Judah is diddly squat, small, next to the crisis that he is facing. And everything in a man would fear and would give way to fear. And yet Jehoshaphat, instead of just allowing fear to control him because he felt the fear, he is going to turn unto God and he's going to call a fast in, in Judah. And all the people of Judah with their women and children are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to turn their face heavenward because he's, re he's reflecting back on the promise given to Solomon that if his people who are called by his name would humble themselves and pray and seek his face, that he would turn from any wicked plans that were going to take place and he would heal land. And so what is taking place is an actual demonstration of a people of God who are called by his name humbling themselves. And you're going to see God's response. I have this, is what God says. 
This is mine. I will take care of these three armies. Your job is to stand still and hold your position. And so Sangfra leadership, Songfra, I think is actually, if you look at my pronunciation guide, it's like Songfra, uh, is to rest in God's ability to do it. Now, that doesn't mean Jehoshaphat does nothing. It doesn't mean he goes back to his bed and goes to sleep and sleeps through the next day. He needs to still move. He needs to get up off the couch and walk forward. But he walks forward trusting that his God is going before him. So as is classically uh, understood in this story, because Jehoshaphat has such confidence in the word of God on the matter, he is going to set his singers out in front of him. Which, by the way, if you've ever studied singers, they're not a great military instrument in, in historic battle, you know, with their trombones and their trumpets, you know, hitting people over the head. It's not the greatest method for winning a battle, unless you know that God is going to be the one fighting. Then you don't lean on your trombones. I know, they didn't have trombones. For whatever reason, I always pull out a trombone in that illustration. So listen to what it says. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. And that's the message to each of our souls. When that door of difficulty opens and that flood of anxiety is threatening to come in, that God reminds us, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. And you could say, well, easy for you to say, you're up in heaven enthroned on high and all things are beneath your feet. I'm just a mere mortal down here. I'm experiencing the real world ramifications of living in hostile territory. And he says, remember, you are a believer in me, which now ensures you a clothing in me, a position in me. That means if you have faith in me, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And therefore, if all things are under my feet, they're also under yours. Stand still and hold your position. Remember where you sit and remember that nothing can wrench you out of this position. So do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Stand up off that sofa, walk towards your cell phone and call. Do the hard thing. Do the thing you know you need to do as a leader. Now, sometimes we're a leader in our own body and we need to shove something. We need to take responsibility for our own behavior instead of blaming it on everyone around us. We're the leader in this territory known as our body, known as our own thought life known as our own emotions. Sometimes we're in a, a situation where, like, as a man, you're a husband, and you need to take it on the chin yourself. You need to do it. You need to rise up and make the action. Sometimes you're a parent, and you want to have someone else parent that kid. Oh, boy, this is a tough one. Instead, you need to rise up, and you need to do what a leader should do. Sang, song fra. Boy, I need to get that down so I could say it with a little more fluidity. Song fra right now. That you hold your composure, you maintain your calm, and you do the right thing. You rise up from that couch, you walk towards that cell phone, and you make the call. You are presidential in that moment. And sometimes the territory expands beyond that. And those are territories I've had to explore in the past couple decades. Where it's like, God, I, you know, I'm having a tough time even just doing this. But as he begins to prove you on your own body, and as he begins to prove you in your marriage, as he begins to prove you in your family, then he readies you for the next tears of handling weights. Where even those of us in this room, it's not to cluck our tongue at Moltke and to say, what a failure. It's just that he didn't have a foundation. But if you were ever put in that situation, which would be a heavy weight, and I'm not going to take that uh, from that situation, from the storyline. It is a very, very heavy weight. But you have grace to handle it. So I oftentimes call it generaling, and that's a term I use. In other words, when I'm working with our leadership here, one of the things that every one of our leadership just begins to know is that if they ever end up with the microphone in front and they are responsible to host or to lead, that God will give them everything they need to do it. In other words, they could, if, if I called on Ryan back there and I said, Ryan, I need you to lead this. What I would want from Ryan is for him to immediately not say, oh, but I don't have any thoughts right now, but I, but I don't feel ready for this. But instead to do something very different, to say, I have exactly what I need because I'm in Christ. And 
as he moves in obedience and he gets up off that couch and he reaches for the cell phone, the equivalent of that in this situation, that he will have precisely what he needs to host and to lead. And we call that generally. And you'll have wisdom as you take those steps forward. Man, it's been proven true so many times. So on the screen, it says generally in the situation, and then the sub point underneath, total confidence that the Spirit of God is capable of directing, leading, supplying, and upholding. And this is how the sangfra of the leader works, that you have full confidence that what you need for this moment is going to be supplied. All right, so God is never going to give you more than is, you can handle. So as a result, I have the grace for what I have right now, even though I really wish I could get out of this situation, even though I really wish that I wasn't here, you know, on the human side. There's another part of me that says, but God has me here, and he is going to supply me everything I need for right now. And that's how a leader handles it. They do not try and dig in their own pockets to say, but God, I am not sufficient for this because that's a dead giveaway anyways. Did you think for any of this calling that you have that you were sufficient for it? No. It starts with the fact that you were insufficient and only God is sufficient, and that's what the transaction of Christianity is based on. I can't save myself. I need a Savior. And so we play that out in every zone of our life, including our leadership. I can't handle this situation. It would crush me. I would fail, but I have access to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So here's Matthew 10 talking about this same thing, song fraud in the midst of a challenging situation. Just as G- this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. You'll be brought into challenging situations for my sake. Okay, we'll translate it that way. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, I will prove you before the nations. I will put weights on your shoulders, challenges before you, so that the Gentiles would be able to witness my work in and through you. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. Now, I don't know how many of you, if you heard that you were going to be thrust into Congress tomorrow to testify, to say something, would not ponder a little about what you would say. In other words, do not worry about that. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. You do know how this works, don't you? You didn't actually think it was you that needs to carry all these weights. You do know that you're a believer and that the Holy Spirit has been given to you so that in the moment of trial, he can shine through you. In fact, it seems to be that the greater the weight and the greater the weakness we feel, the greater the strength is proven in and through us. And that's why we can take delight in these circumstances because we know God amps up his game in those very moments. So there's two kinds of leaders. One, those that draw from their own reservoir of impressiveness. I'm going to call that the pathetic ROI, reservoir of impressiveness. And if you know about investments uh, or business, you're always looking for the ROI, the return on investments. Okay, what's my ROI on this? Well, I'm going to say that if you draw on your own reservoir of of impressiveness, you're going to have a terrible ROI. You're going to have a terrible return on investment for that givenness. Moltke is going to have a very, very poor ROI because he's drawing from his own reservoir of impressiveness. He's an impressive guy. He is a genius you know, of military history. He knows everything from military history. But in a time of trial, it's not just your knowledge and your encyclopedic understanding that you need. It's faith. It's childlike trust in the ability of God. And Moltke does not have that. And as a result... He has a pathetic ROI. There's another kind of leader, and that's those that draw from the heavenly reservoir of impressiveness, and reservoir is capitalized with a capital R, and impressiveness has a capital I, which is a capital R-O-I. And I'm gonna call that the extraordinary R-O-I, the reservoir of impressiveness. When you draw from the God reservoir of impressiveness, actually, your leadership becomes impressive. It does, not because you yourself are impressive, but because of what you get to showcase in that situation. 
which is the impressiveness of God. Song Fra. The world can actually esteem Song Fra, but they need something to actually demonstrate it in the time of great crisis. Winston Churchill, and this is from his memoirs on World War II. So I'm just going to bring you into, I know we're talking about World War I. However, in World War I, there aren't a lot of great illustrations of this. And that's what's weird about World War I, is you have a lot of world leaders that are collapsing, that they're falling to pieces. Because they weren't a hardy stock to start with, which is why we have World War I. World War I is a result of a whole bunch of egotistical people, self-centered people, you know, sort of clamoring for control and voice. And so as a result, you don't have the same thing that you have with like Winston Churchill. Now, Horatio Kitchener, which I already talked about in a different message, is going to show some of this. Not at the same level of Churchill, which is why you don't hear me bragging about that my middle name is Horatio or something like that. My middle name is Winston, right? And also Albert. Albert, I would say, is the great picture of this in World War II. I'm sorry, in World War I. But I'm going to, but I've already used that illustration quite a few times. So I'm going to draw on the Winston Churchill illustration, even though I still may use this a few times. I love the Winston Churchill illustration in World War II, because it's song fra. So this is what, the morning of the 10th of May dawned, is what Winston Churchill says. Now this is 1940. So I know, we were in 1914. We suddenly just went into a time travel capsule and ended up in 1940. Uh, And The morning of the 10th of May dawned, May 10th, 1940, uh, if I could borrow a quote from Franklin Roosevelt, which is speaking about December 7th, 1941, I would say, is a day that would live in infamy, because this is the day that the Germans, the Nazi machine is going to attack Belgium, Holland, and then sweep into France. It's a day of chaos. And this is the day that Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of of England at the time, is going to be deposed, and Winston Churchill is going to inherit the leadership at the darkest hour of their history. I mean, everything has fallen to pieces, and Winston Churchill is going to step into arguably one of the hardest leadership situations that any man has ever been given in history. So the morning of the 10th of May dawned, and with it came tremendous news. Boxes with telegrams poured in from the Admiralty, the War Office, and the Foreign Office. The Germans had struck their long-awaited blow. Holland and Belgium were were both invaded. Their frontiers had been crossed at numerous points. The whole movement of the German army upon the invasion of the Low Countries and of France had begun. Thus then, on the night of the 10th, so I, I skipped a whole bunch, but he is going to be put in the Prime Minister position, How would most of us handle this? It's like, okay, I'm sitting on the couch, and God says, Eric, you're the leader. You need to get up and do this hard thing. You know, just getting your legs straight to stand up is not that easy. And then walking towards that cell phone and then actually pushing the call button and then not hanging up immediately, right? That's that's hard to actually just take those steps forward. So how's he doing on the night of, of the 10th? Thus then, on the night of the 10th of May, at the outset of this mighty battle, I acquired the chief power in the state, which henceforth I wielded an ever-growing measure for five years and three months of world war. During these last crowded days of the political crisis, my pulse had not quickened at any moment. I took it all as it came. But I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at about 3 a.m. on May uh, that would have been May 11th. I, I don't know why I, I did that. It's May 10th that he got the job, so it would have been May 11th. I actually put that in parentheses to try and help you, but I ended up giving the wrong date. May 11th, 1940, I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Okay, so his handling of the weights is very different than Moltke. Moltke is crumbling. Churchill is actually smiling, if you want to say it that way. Laying in bed, sleeping well, desirous for the morning to come. He has an assignment that no one on earth would want, except for him. Because he feels built for it. He feels like all of his trials that he has had, he has been, a polit- he's been in the political wilderness for a, a long time, decades. 
where no one really sides with him. He has stood against Hitler and no one believed him. He was called a warmonger and a hate monger. And now, when everything that he has stood for has been proven true, they call on him. And he is used to tremendous weight. And as a result, he's like, all right, let's do this thing. The man built for the hour, forged by trial and readied to carry the extraordinary weights. This is what you want to be. Now, I know it says the man, and there's some women in here that are like, excuse me, how do I appropriate this? But it's the same principle. When we're talking about world war, you oftentimes don't just inject, you know, a woman into a general position. It's not the most normal thing to do, right? And, uh, you know, the Joan of Arc is obviously the one uh, huge exception in history. It was like, what do you do with Joan? Uh, yet, women have the same trials, the same purpose to carry impossible weights in the impossible hour. And the same grace is available, so it's not just a man message, even though we're talking about World War right here. So this is a quote that I oftentimes just try and find an excuse to stick in. Uh, there was an Ellerslie student that was back in Scotland, and they were looking at different uh, William Wallace locations, you know, from uh, their study of his life. And their Stirling Castle is like a, one of those big moments in the Wallace storyline. And so she found this quote and sent it to me. And boy, have I milked this quote over the years. So listen to this. This is actually speaking of William Wallace at the, at like, I don't know, it's like the 500 year anniversary. It was something like that of uh, the heroics of, of Stirling Castle. So it's called an 1897 Stirling Celebration. And this guy's name is Sir Archibald Primrose, and this was a speech he was giving. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. I, I don't know if you have the same response to that quote, but when I hear a quote like that, it's like beckoning me to rise up. It's like, Eric, will you be such a man? Now, it's supposed to do the same to you. I don't know that it's just an Eric Ludy quote, right? that is just supposed to stir me, but I want to be one that is ready for the crisis. I don't want to shun crisis, treat crisis as bad. Crisis is the avenue that God uses in our life to demonstrate His power. And if you knew that the world would understand the gospel more clearly in a time of crisis than in a time of ease, and your great desire is for this lost world to see Jesus, what would you think about crisis? you'd actually say, okay, Lord, I'm not necessarily desiring you to just bring it on in heaps, but train me and prepare me for it. I want to be ready to demonstrate your life, your sung fra, in the midst of that moment. Your composure, the fact that I am fixed to rock when everything else is sand. Sand is proven sand. It is proven weak in that moment, which is why when the winds and waves are beating against us, our house, this is the hour to prove that our foundation is better than Moltke's. In other words, this is our hour to proclaim the truth of the unseen realm. So there's a line in here, and that is, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis. In other words, what you have in your soul is agreeable to the crisis. What you have, it's like if I came up to you and said, that'll cost you a million dollars. Well, uh, is your pocketbook congenial to the demand? Is it happy to the demand? It's like, I'm ready for that, and here's your million. Okay, most of us are not, con our, our pocketbook is not congenial to that demand, right? But what if our soul could get wealthy? What if we could invest in our pursuit of Jesus Christ so that our capacity is congenial to the crisis. See? There has to be at least someone that is stirred to say, yes, Lord, do that in me. 
So every Christian has access to this congenial to the crisis grace. In other words, if you want it, it's there. But some of us are like, I'm not exactly sure if I want that, because then that just means I may have a crisis. Because if I had all that congenial to crisis grace, then God's like, well, we need to use that. We need to test that. We have this notion that if we don't get it, maybe we would have less crises in our life. No, then what we have is a crisis without the capacity that is congenial to it. And as a result, we crumble instead of rise up and flourish in the midst of it. Now, I've used this illustration many times, but it works really well. And that is the, the weight room where, you know, people will pay to have access to weights. Isn't that a funny statement? Some of them will pay big bucks, you know, like $100 a month type of a thing. It's like, yeah, could I have access to those weights in there, those difficulties? Yeah, I'd like to come daily and have difficulty pressed against my body, and I would like to embrace that difficulty, and why, why would someone do that? Why would someone pay to do that? Because they know that it, in embracing weights and exercising with weights, their muscle actually becomes congenial to greater amounts of weight. I mean, that's, of course, we know that, but that's different is what we say in our soul. And yet the physical body is a reflection of the spiritual and so what we have is the same thing where God's like, I have a weight room for you. Would you? And it's free. That's what's amazing. It's free. And maybe that's why we don't take it seriously. Maybe God should charge a weight room fee for all our trials and tribulations. It's like, hey, if you really want these, we're going to have a $100 a month fee for this. And we're like, well, that must be valuable then. And then we start embracing our trials and considering them pure joy. You see, but our problem is we have a negative conception towards difficulty and as a result, we don't exercise the small difficulties in our life to receive more grace. The way that we gain the grace that is congenial to the crisis is that we exercise the grace we do have in the smaller trials of our life. We receive them with a smile. We receive them with a song fraud that we do have already. There are certain things right now that you probably have a song fraud towards. It's, it's interesting, most of us don't think about this, but there are smaller trials that you've already trounced underfoot, and you sort of laugh at them. Ha! That's nothing. I know Jesus, right? And so what you want to do is take that grace that you have for the smaller moments, that song fra grace that you have, and now begin to exercise it and be stretched with it. And so the same way that you have begun to trounce small little trials with a chuckle and a ha, is the same thing that you want to now do towards bigger ones. And there is no size too great for the grace of God. In other words, if you find yourself in Moltke's position or in Churchill's position, could you imagine being able to ha, to laugh at that and to say, God's grace is sufficient, but don't you feel a pressure, sir? Oh yeah, the pressure is there, but do you know what I have within me? It is greater than the pressure from the outside. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in this world. So what you could say is greater is the song fraud within the Christian than any weight, than any trial that can come on us from, in this, from this outside world. So every Christian has access to this congenial to the crisis grace. So what should we do? Go after it exercise, take advantage of the free gym membership you have. Take the individual crises in your, in your life, the small trials that you face, and rejoice in them. Give thanks for them. Use them to grow stronger. So here's, I've, this is again another famous, well famous, uh, a constant quote that Eric finds excuses to bring up. I, I threw some good ones in this. And this is, in fact, I think I gave a sermon a few weeks ago where I drew on this, but this is Moses at the Red Sea. But it's Flavius Josephus' account of it. So he was a historian, a Jewish historian in the days of Christ. And he wrote a multi-volume book called The Antiquities of the Jews. And this is how he describes Moses. Now remember, what we're talking about is leadership. Okay, now I've taught this in various angles and forms. But if you're just looking at Moses' leadership in this, this guy has some serious song fraud. So the Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. So uh, we, got, we have a problem. The Egyptians are swarming. They, they don't like the fact that their slaves got away. 
and they're mad, and there's a huge throng of them, and they're coming, and the, the Israelites have nothing. They're in a very desperate place. If they should have thought of fighting, they had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they basically have one option, and that's to return to servitude. So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom, and this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. So what is Moses doing, them, doing the whole time? He's encouraging them and promising them deliverance. Isn't that an interesting thing to do in the, in the face of this? So you have an entire nation. You know, there's been arguments about how many Israelites would have been there after all these, you know, generations. And so it's like, well, we don't know, but it's a lot. So let's just use the number a million, right? Imagine being over a million people. I don't know how many of them had stones in their hands, but you know, you're not in a pleasant situation. To boot, you have the strongest military power in the world at that time, the Egyptians, coming in full force and very angry. And so, I don't know how you're doing in this situation. Moltke, I have a hunch, would crumple. Churchill, we've already seen, he'd probably be like, huh, this is great. I love this. This is exactly the moment that I've been waiting for. You know, Moses is going to handle it with a Churchillian attitude which of course is all we could describe as a Jesus attitude. This is our Lord. This is his response. This is a great moment in history, guys. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers. Out of his trust in God, he said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. Is God in control? Absolutely. Well, then it would be no better than madness to give up now. God's led us this far. He'll lead us onward. He might be the only one out of the million that actually is a believer, but he is going to lead his people to safety. Extraordinary story, guys. That is a leader who doesn't crumble in the midst of the crisis, but actually grows 10 feet taller. Two kinds of leaders, two very different results. Matthew 7, 27, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This entire message is called the meltdown of Moltke, and great was its fall. In other words, it's a historic meltdown. It's a historic, I mean, we understand the pressures were historic, but so is the failure in the time of crisis, that this leader over the entire German military, which is known for its brashness and its boldness and its courage, is going to flop when the crisis happens. As long as they're winning, you know, everyone has the bravado, but the moment it starts to turn bad, Moltke goes on meltdown. And that's what the scriptures say. This is Jesus talking. When the rains descend, when the battle of the Marne turns, when Kluk, is, his flank is struck, and the Germans begin to retreat. Isn't that what it says here in Matthew 7? The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. It fell, and great was its fall. But what is that contrasted with? Actually, this is the second illustration. It's actually, this is an earlier verse. And Jesus is establishing, this is the way I'm building you. That you can be in that situation as a house, and be hit with high hurricane-like winds that rains could be pummeling your house. And yet, the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. There is your secret, the secret sauce of the Christian. We are founded upon the rock as leaders we dig our root system into that rock, and when the winds start blowing, we don't reason of, you know, from our own strength. We don't dig in our own pockets. We hold on to that rock, and as a result, we can have composure. We can have song in the midst of the darkest hour. Father, this is something we need you to build within us. We esteem it. 
We long for it, but we need your grace to begin to exercise this in us and to grow it up so that the capacity that we have internally is congenial to the crises of the moment. Lord, build us into your men and women that are ready for the hour of trial. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.